Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Doctor Is In podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba. Um, today's guest is Jamie Lewis. She's a managing partner of Coldwater Consulting and vice president of operations for Neo Alternatives and Route 66. She is a serious powerhouse within the medical cannabis industry. Her career spans more than 15 years, starting with making medical cannabis edibles for HIV AIDS patients in California, moving into operations of commercial cannabis companies and kitchens, and evolving into multiple leadership and advocacy roles. She's held board positions at the NCIA, Women Grow, and the Council on Responsible Cannabis, and chaired committees for the National Packaging and Labeling Standards Committee, and the Health and Safety Committee for the Massachusetts Cannabis Control Commission. It is a mouthful, all the things that she has done. Um, she has worked tirelessly uh, these past years to guide legislation, support the creation of responsible regulation, everything from health and safety to labeling and packaging uh, cannabis projects. If you don't know Jamie Lewis, this is a great opportunity to get to know her. It is a storied career that she's had, and I'm super, super excited to have her on our show today. Jamie, thank you so much for being on our podcast, The Doctor Is In. It's great to have you here. Uh, thank you so much for that introduction. I am a old goat, but most importantly, I've had a lot of fun in doing all the things that you mentioned. They sound really serious, but they were, they were a lot of hard work, but it was fun. I love what I do. I love well, what I do. I, I love to hear that because, you know, I, I'm, I feel like my career has sort of moved from, you know, a very simple way to, to help the industry, you know, one-on-one B2B and then moving more into guiding and supporting legislation and regulation and, and all of that. So I'm excited to hear your path, how it maybe parallels or doesn't my own. Um, and even sort of for me, even a look into the future of what you know, what could become for, for my own career based on what you've done. So you're, you are an inspiration. We haven't even started talking and I'm already gushing my excitement. Yeah. Well, since <laughs> I am such an old goat, I look forward to watching all these young ladies bump me and go much faster and harder than, than I did. I've just paved the way as so many other women have done for us. Well, I mean, and thank you for that. Yeah. I mean, there's so much work to be done. It's so much work to be done. And, you know, I originally got into this. I was set to be a, uh, I wanted to be a culinary rock star. I loved food. I loved the restaurant scene and I was living in Northern California and I'd moved to San Francisco, sort of the culinary Mecca. Um, and I grew up in sort of very sort of humble beginnings and I didn't have the money for the fine dining and the experience. And I really, it was a foreign thing to me and I wanted to understand what that was like. So I really dove into food and service and entertainment, so to speak, by the way of food, hospitality as a whole. And I moved to San Francisco and I went to the California Culinary Academy and I wanted to uh, move forward in the culinary scene. And at that time, I was very much involved in now what we call it, the legacy market. It was, you know, we didn't have such a colorful vocabulary for it back then. I, you know, I was definitely dabbling in what we would have considered myself to be a drug dealer in terms of servicing at the time patients with cannabis products. I, at the same time I got involved in the culinary world, I was a huge cannabis consumer. I grew up in Northern California. Where in Northern California, by the way, I have to ask. Mitchell Valley, very small town. And I'd like to give a shout out to Waterford, California. Excellent. 
population <laughs> 6,000. What's up, mom, pops, and Kelly Renee? What's up? Um, but with that said, it was a very small town and agriculture was at the base of it. And my father was an almond farmer and my mom was a school teacher. Um, and so I set off to San Francisco to be a culinary rock star. And like all things I had to subsidize, um, experience with the culinary world and cannabis and sort of in a weird way, I sort of combined the both. And what I didn't realize was that there was this medicinal value to cannabis that I hadn't paid attention to. And there was a consumer that would come into the restaurants that had a very sick father that was HIV positive. And he suggested he had read some articles, thought maybe some cannabis could help. And so began this weird sort of research without Google doing what it does now, a sort of self-exploration on cannabis and the medicinal properties that it has. And weirdly enough, I was very obsessed with nutritional value in food and here was cannabis and it had a ton of value in terms of medicinal benefits. So I began creating recipes specifically for this one customer that would come in. And then so began a bit of a cult following with patients that were HIV positive that were in the Castro area where coincidentally a few of the restaurants that I worked for were in. So I began playing around with edibles. At the time, it was sometimes too strong, too fast, not strong enough, but I began just sort of tracking it and being able to figure mm -hmm. out that there was benefits to it with wasting disease and neuropathic numbness. That was just these anecdotal things that patients or consumers would come back to and tell me that it was beneficial. And it really aggravated me the lack of education around it. So at a very grassroots level, that's how I got involved in it and servicing and seeing the benefit it was providing to people, the relief really. What, what uh, I have to ask, what was the first edible you ever made? Oh, oh. Sad, sadly, I know I wish it was a great story, but it was the pot brownie. Right? Yes, of course yes. it has to be. the pot brownie. <laughs> I mean, I was like, ooh, there's no glory there. It's sort of an epic story, but it was the pot brownie and it wasn't strong enough. I would like to say that because a lot of times the story is it was, I was always concerned about the over of it. So the decarbing was something I just, it was self-taught really. There wasn't a lot of education around how to properly decarb cannabis in terms of the texture, the feel, the smell of it, what it looks like. Um, so there were a lot of flawed recipes for sure. Then there was the overly strong and, you know, my father, who is uh, suffers from PTSD was a great test case. Nice. Great case. He had no problem with the over consuming at all. He, Interesting. He so did you make pot brownies with, with cannabis butter or just with flour? I mean, yeah. I, it took me forever to figure out that people were making brownies and edibles with butter and not just with like the flour. Like, where did that start? I, I have no idea, but I was schooled by the best of the French, right? So we, we definitely extract our herbs, right? There's an extraction. Oh. I had that basic understanding, but maybe I was taking it a little too far with the, the extracting of it. The bl I blanched it. I definitely blanched it at first because I thought that was of the chlorophyll. Yeah. And then there was a lot of, you know, a lot in the beginning stages was a lot of the ghee. So it was, you know, definitely mm. getting butter to the clarified state to preserving it so I could really play around with it. And then I became very actively involved 
on what I didn't even understand at the time was the regulatory work and working with fellow colleagues in the same process under the Compassionate Care Act in California, we were all operating as not-for-profits. So there was a little bit of a beginning of us misfits starting what now is the cannabis industry. And I worked very closely with the Department of Health, but through working with those various cultivators, I started getting access to hash and various forms of oil. And then I started playing with cold water hash. And I really liked making edibles and candies with that infusion process. I found it to be quite lovely, especially in the beginning stages when we didn't have the closed loop systems and the vendors coming around. So it was fun times. I mean, was baking and candies and desserts, was that of a particular interest for you already in your culinary arts? Or did you just move to that? You you migrated that because that's where you found this niche. I originally was making, so it started out as brownies, but the edibles that I was giving out, they were very much this, and I hate to say it, but very boring compared to what's being offered now, but they were, they were granola bars. They were uh, muffins with added benefits and value. I was dealing with very Hmm. people. So, you know, in the beginning stages, what I was making was very much an added benefit for consumption. So it wasn't on the candies or treat size. It was a banana nut muffin, believe it or not, was quite That popular. sounds delicious. Where can I get that? So popular. I'd like to bring it back. We should we should Please. bring that back for a sneak. Yeah. And they were mini muffins. So they were like little bites. And then I found, and I was one of the first ones, and this is hilarious to talk about now, but I found that beverages and I made a line of lemonade under under a Dr. Price brand. That was quite popular and it was very good for um, those that were going through cancer and chemo because it was numbing for the throats and it was soothing, but it was also fast acting. And uh, I made those in little, little small consumption form bottles, maybe like, I don't know, 50 milligrams or something per dose, but they were, those were quite popular. And I think it was, you know, maybe a year or two after getting into it that I started to fully work with other dispensaries and dispensing in that level because most of it was really just focused on HIV patients that were really sick and then cancer patients. It was sort of a cult following. I would just get various people with ailments or, and want to try cannabis. And that really began my frustration around the lack of education and support for all the value I saw in people needing it. I mean, uh, in terms of HIV and, and cancer patients, I mean, it was one of the benefits for medical cannabis and edibles to help them eat, to have an appetite. Oh, there's all different sort of things that I witnessed anecdotally in terms of what was positive effects, but most of it was the benefits that they got from um, the stimulation and appetite, the Availability to be able to sleep, especially for those that are going through chemo. The nausea is a really big one on that side. With the HIV patients, I found one of the biggest things was the neuropathic numbness that they would get and the wastings disease. So appetite stimulation most certainly worked definitely on that front. And then just the overall benefits that it had for just chronic pain or symptoms that they had acquired from other pain medications that they had been taking, cannabis was very helpful in. Did you find that certain strains or CBD versus THC had different impacts? I mean, I feel like it's sort of anecdotal. Maybe some research is starting to come out. 
but you know, in those early days and when you were first experimenting, did you see differences? Were you seeking out certain cultivars to to infuse in your products, or did you just take what you could get and you saw benefit? You know, the one benefit early on that I could always say and still speak about, and I'm still true to the can of butter process and the whole plant extraction process, is that no matter what process I did, if it was whole plant or extracted in butter form, it affected women in a much more positive way than I saw in any other sort of category of people, if you were. And it was very strange to me, but yeah, that whole plant can of butter really connects to our endocannabinoid system in a really awesome way, I find. And for me, I was always much such a supporter of keeping it in this, this whole plant form extractions and you know that whole process, it, it was fairly new coming onto the scene in terms mm. of having equipment and the processing to do it. So a lot of what, what we were dealing with early on was the whole plant and the flower in itself. So I feel very blessed in the sense that I was a part of the industry from the very infancy of getting it to an industry because we worked with it in very sort of rustic ways. But it was also I got to work with it in hands on ways of seeing decarbed cannabis in various forms and seeing what it looks like when you extract it in an oil, coconut oil or butter. I mean, all these different levels definitely affect the way it affects us and how it's consumed. Interesting. Can, can you give an example, like the difference between a can of butter and, um, no, I can't remember. What well, let's talk about or a coconut or whatever. Yeah. Let's talk about eating a, an, an edible that's made with an oil extraction, which is now most commonly what we consume. Most mm -hmm. edibles now are made with the CO2 or a BHO or some sort of a, a crude oil form. And there are very few companies that still use sort of a can of butter or a whole plant sort of process in that rustic form, I guess we could call it now. I guess it's really not. It's just a different style of cooking. We'll have to come up with a whole terminology. <laughs> I think so. Um, but I think that there is a distinct difference in consuming it. And I think that there's a, a very distinct difference in consuming a BHO, a CO2, or a, a whole plant can of butter edible. I think it's different in the sense of drinking coffee and tea, the effects in terms of fast acting nano now that we have on the scene and, and all these sort of different hmm. ways that we can hurry up and get the effects. I think there's a lot to be respected with the way the plant affects our bodies naturally in that sense. I mean, a question just popped into my head as you're playing with the, you know, is it concentrated enough too too little, right? Like where did the, where did the five milligram dose come from? Do you know? Oh my gosh. Okay. So yeah. So the go low, go slow, right? Crazy enough. You're speaking to the woman who was part of the trade organization that started that. Yes. Or, I didn't even well, realize. That. Yeah. Awesome. So I do actually, as such a canon nerd that I am, I was, I, I was, I just had to put my hoof in everything, but yeah, I just, so originally in, in Colorado, we had medical and there really wasn't a limit on the milligrams in the edibles, right? And it was ultimately driven much like, unfortunately, cannabis flowers driven by now by THC percentages. So it was driven by more bang by your buck. So various edibles companies were competing with each other for how much milligrams could you sell per dollar per you know, so there were some of us and some on this podcast, even if they don't, you know, some of us that sold them at 500 milligrams, 350 milligrams, a thousand milligrams. There was 
there really wasn't a limit, right? I know it's crazy. <laughs> I, I would be on the floor drooling if I had that dose. There were a lot of mishaps. There were a lot of issues. You have novice consumers over consuming and never wanting to eat again. You have people not fully understanding the effects of it with alcohol. You have mm. a lack of education. When this all happened, it happened very fast. We were under the medical. And then ultimately you got introduced to the recreational by way of us pushing it forward through the legalization process. But what that started was us drafting legislation and rules and regs around limits, right? Around alcohol has limits, right? You can't sell over a certain amount. So ultimately it came down to hundred milligrams. That's what we settled on. And there were fights, fights amongst a lot of edibles companies who didn't agree. They thought it was too low. They thought that there needed to be more, but ultimately some of us on the, the other side were advocating that it was too much and that micro dosing and smaller dosing would actually be more effective. So we sat at a hundred milligrams, but much like pharmaceuticals, crazy enough, because this is how it was all started to be tracked, right? Track it like pharmaceuticals because it's medicinal. The idea that you could buy in a pill form one 20 milligram aspirin, right? At a total of a hundred milligrams was sort of the thought process of to which you could get a total of a hundred milligrams, but it needed to be limited. And Massachusetts is the least with the five milligrams, right? They have a very low dosage, but originally Colorado was 10 milligrams and that sort of set the tone for the rest of the state. So most states are at the 10 milligrams to hundred milligrams total per package on the recreational side. Massachusetts being special likes to go a little stricter. So they did it at the five milligrams, which is which means you would get 20 units per 100 milligrams. But ultimately it was the regulation process. And there was a lot of fear around children getting access to it, easily marking it, identifying it separately. There were a lot of layers to where we got to where we got to, a lot of deals cut in terms of what we couldn't ultimately win. But we ultimately set on 100 milligrams. And I feel like it wasn't so much setting it at the hundred milligrams as being able to easily identify the 10 milligrams was really what I was advocating for mm -hmm. was that a consumer should know how many milligrams and to limit it in a way in an edible form so they can consume it that way. Right. And they can make the decision for themselves how much they want to consume. You can buy a bottle of whiskey and drink it by the shot or the whole bottle if you choose, but you do know how much is in there. And what, what that it, proof is, exactly. What it's going to do to you after the fact. So, and yeah. for me, it's just a, being a good business operator in the education process, because my fear was if someone tried a mountain goat bar and didn't realize how strong it was, they wouldn't come back to try the product again. So it was just, a lot of it was education and a lot of it was best business practices and really driven by us trying to make sure that it was the safest it could be. I also feel I'm like, it's, it's also about quality control. Like even just knowing what is in your product, that if, if that's regulated and specified to a specific value, then you know exactly what that number should be that you're targeting every single time. And when I talk about Colorado making these decisions, these were work groups. These were months of us sitting around tables, mm. hashing out that very simple question of how many milligrams, how are you going to label it? What do we call it? I mean, a lot of what we did from the transition of me relocating to Colorado was establishing things that 
now seem very common to us, but we had to define those things. None of it, none of it was set in a way that it most certainly could have done better. But I can say that working in Colorado, it provided sort of an open table, open door process with having a bunch of regulators and officials and cannabis people at the table to try to really do it the best way we could. Yeah. And in a standard way. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you this. This is sort of a personal question. My, my wife has zero effect by eating edibles. Why? I mean, she, she smokes flour, a lot of flour, she, you know, she's, she's a, she's a user, but when it comes to edibles, if I ate, you know, 20 milligrams of something, I would, I would be knocked out. She could eat a hundred milligrams of something and feel nothing. What's going on? Can I ask a few questions about you? Sure. I don't know if I'm going to be able to answer them, but I'll try. Simply, do you know she has a high metabolism? Does she process, does she, generally people who are, two scenarios for this. One who's extremely active or has a high metabolism, meaning that they consume food just slightly a little differently than the rest of us, fortunately better than I do. I have a slow metabolism. So I tend to pack it on a little bit more in certain areas. Me too. Yeah. But I tend to find in men and women that do not feel the direct effects of the cannabis. It has something to do and I am no doctor, but it has something to do with their metabolism and the way they generally process food and they process it a little faster and they're unable to feel the effects of it. It also matters what kind of edibles she's consuming, Mm. right? So if she's consuming, again, going back to the can of butter versus oil versus BHO styles, um, I do tend to find that the heartier edibles tend to be a little easier and they sit in your stomach a little bit longer. So it might add for a little bit more of that THC absorption versus um, candies. Have her try a tincture, see what happens. Okay. Okay. And get back to me. I'm curious to know what happens with the tincture. I- I definitely will. I wouldn't say she has a high metabolism um, necessarily, but what is really unique about her is she has really low cholesterol and low blood pressure. Like her cholesterol is like she is a newborn. Yeah. And low blood pressure. Um, In fact, we went to the Dead Sea four or five years ago and she passed out. yeah, because the uh, people go there to reduce their blood pressure and she went and it lowered it too much and she passed out. Yeah. She her- can't eat green papaya. She can't eat any green papaya and CBD, unfortunately, mm. not a benefit for her. So blood pressure is something that I've looked sort of broadly at because I have low blood pressure. Okay. Um, so cannabis affects me slightly a little different, like edibles. If I eat a large consumption of them, I tend to pass out. It affects me in a very strange way, but I, the, the real thing that I've seen with the metabolism and the cannabis is that, and solely that no direct relation between blood pressure, but this is interesting because if she consumes a tincture and it affects her, then it is something to do with the way she metabolizes food or food, like mm. that piece the lozenges and the gummies and the candies have a high sugar content too, which, you know, those that tend to process food better rushes right through them. So it's yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It might be something. Okay. Yeah. It's it's interesting though. I'm always curious about, because 
ultimately edibles will always be that one weird thing that we won't ever fully be able to say that it affects everybody equally because we all do have sort of a different way to burn calories, right? Mm, Yeah. I'm also, so here's my odd duck characteristic is that for me using pot, I lose my appetite. I want someone to study me. I wish that was me. <laughs> really There's certain strains, certain terps, <laughs> certain things that I can, that I have to stay away from. I literally have to stay away from and crazy enough. It's generally those on the, the real floral terp side. Like I, I have to go for the hmm. diesel diesels and the real cheesy smells. I think because that turns me off from the food. I don't know. <laughs> I'm definitely affected by the turps. The turps definitely affect whether or not I'm gonna be hungry or I I like a good diesel for focus. I feel like that's a serious smell, you know? Okay. It's It's so serious. I love that. So uh, let me, I want to geek out with you just a little bit about your culinary background, um, because, you know, a lot of the work that we do is also to grow food, not just to grow cannabis. And um, with your experience, even in a commercial kitchen, you know, one of the ways that I describe sometimes when we work with architects who haven't worked with someone like us before, as I say, we're like a kitchen consultant. You know, we come in, we specialize in this very specific area of the building of the project that you're working on. And we're going to come in and we're going to design it, give you drawings, and then you can like use it in your, in your permit documents or your, your overall design. And they're like, oh, I get that. I get kitchen consultant. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, if just on, on that point, what are some of the parallels that you've seen in, you know, a commercial food kitchen versus maybe even the evolution of a cannabis kitchen? Are, are the design requirements and operating requirements the same? What variables are you trying to control? Are they unique or are they really pretty much the same? I think the backbone for all major commercial food production, right? Like whether it be for restaurants or for commercial packaged, right? Packaged distributed items, not directly to consumer, right? So you have your restaurants and then you have your wholesale distributors. Mm. I think it's very backbone how you process that food from a serve safe and a hazard and safe and a health and safety standpoint is, is the same in terms of food science, but the design and the construction and the operations, they, they are different. They are different because you're dealing with restaurants and where I came from was restaurants. So it was service to food, create a menu. It was wait staff. It was on the order. Very much a lot of my work ethic came from getting my ass handed to me in a lot of restaurants on service lines. It's very hard work for you know 12 hours a day. So I definitely got my hard work and work ethic from that scene. And then to take that, that backbone and to transfer that over into a construction and build out of a different design was a bit of a learning curve for me. But I can say that having a strong understanding of food and restaurants and flow was certainly helpful. I mean, certainly helpful, but it is distinctly different. Similarities in terms of commercial kitchen design and ours is I layer in and always mention to architects during the programming process that it's a bit of a lab style, right? Mm -hmm. You have a lot of testing and controlling and there's very limited error, room for error in terms of dosing. So I think that 
where I've seen the industry progress into is standardizing operations on how they distribute and manage the portion size and portion controls. So it's become more um, industrial, I guess you could say. Than, Interesting. Yeah. That is a great question though. A really great question. <laughs> In the beginning stages, it was all of us makeshifting and getting through some, some regulations in gray areas and then having to step up into commercial industries. And, and that's the same on my cultivation design and my retail design as well. Like taking in that, I have grew up in farmland. So understanding plant science was huge for me too. Like having that aspect and then being able to take outdoor indoor was, mm-hmm. was a bit of a learning curve. Some costly walls went up for sure that, you know, now my clients don't have to afford the risk of running. I, you know, lessons learned. Lessons, yes. <laughs> lessons learned. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you talked a little bit about starting to get involved in like the standardization of, of dosages and, and, you know, moving to Colorado and, and focusing on these like hundred milligram packages of, of, of doses is that what ultimately got you involved in sort of the, the regulation and standardization around cannabis? Or is there something else that kind of pushed you in that direction? I really hate being told no. And okay. I really hate not being able to allow what I know is right to happen. And that ultimately mm. is the only reason I have been such a leader as an advocate for the regulations and the right way to do it is because I think for me specifically, I've been an owner operator in in this most of my career in terms of actually working directly with patients and consumers and seeing the benefits of it. But the frustration for me very early on was I need to get in front of this and make sure that we push it forward, I guess. I had no idea it was going to go where it was going to go and that I was somehow going to be the first female chair of the National Cannabis Industry Association and that we were going to have lobbyists and that we were going to be drafting regulations. Like in the beginning stages, the only reason I got involved was I was really fucking pissed around the miseducation and the misuse of cannabis and being told no, that we couldn't move forward with this, with all the propaganda that was just ultimately lies. So me just being a stubborn asshole was really ultimately why I got so actively involved and continue to, I mean, it's, there's so much work still to do. And I was going to ask you, like, what are you concerned about? I mean, for, for me on the cultivation side and coming from, from horticulture and more traditional controlled environment, agriculture, you know, I, I see a lot of fingers pointed at cannabis and wanting to regulate the whole industry because of, you know, the devil's weed or whatever legislators think it is. And, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about over-regulation, right. And, and about that, like you said, that miseducation or uneducation by the people who are making the laws, making the rules for an industry that they just, they don't understand that they're not a part of, whether it's just agriculture and farming in general, whether it's controlled environment, agriculture and nurseries, or whether it's, it's cannabis. And for me, that has been one of my biggest motivations is like, hold on a second. You don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Like, let's just slow down a second. Give us a chance to educate you and cast a big umbrella and just like, let's all talk about this and figure out what works for everybody um, and find that common ground as opposed to, um, you know, just, just finger pointing and blaming one thing for everything. I think ultimately right now, my biggest concern is how fragmented we are as an industry. I mean, mm. 
we were, when I was involved very early on, and a lot of my colleagues who were just as old as me in this, you know, we had associations and organizations at the state and the federal level that were advocating with one unified voice. You pointed out, like, you know, being involved in the National Standardization and Packaging Committee, right? Yeah. That was us just trying to standardize things so that it made it simple for regulators, right? So there's that education piece. My biggest concern right now is, you know, just recently we had several pieces of legislation going forward federally from several different trade associations, all with their own incentives and needs and wants and, and all of that. And I think I learned the hard way that though I didn't want the 100 milligrams or the five or 10 in the very beginning stages, we as an industry in Colorado work together to advocate for one voice to the regulators. And because of that, we were able to prohibit it from being 20 milligrams total, right? Which would take ultimately manufacturers under the amount of labor and packaging per unit. But so there's a process of to which I saw it done early on in a much smaller controlled group, I guess, in the beginning we had, but ultimately my concern ultimately now is just how fragmented we are because we have another four years to push forward. And, and I'd like to see us come together with much more of a unified voice. We have CBD, we have Delta A, we have hemp, we have cannabis, we have states, we have federal, and then we have international doing their own thing as well. So there's a lot of different dynamics yeah. from market assumption and from everything from small business owners to MSOs, it's just that I see a need for a unified voice. Yeah, I like that you say that. I think one of the things that surprised me as I was really getting into the industry being introduced more into it maybe four or five years ago is that there's like a competition between even between these trade associations. I, I don't understand why, like you said, there's not a unified voice or that we can't find a uniform platform to at least start with, right? That everyone can agree on to move the industry forward. But just literally to hear people say, oh, you know, like, we don't like the way they're doing it or don't talk to them because they're, they're, they're competing. And I'm like, what do you mean they're competing? They're advocating for this, this plant, for this product. I, I don't understand. I, I just, I don't understand. I've, I've been here for going on now, almost 20 years. I got to update my bio sister, but honestly, <laughs> I've, I've learned the hard way that uh, we are only going to make this a solid industry for a unified voice. Mm -hmm. If we think that one voice or one group matters more than the other. There's then no direct voice controlling. I mean, we are ultimately fighting amongst each other. And what value do we get out of that when we already have to fight to federally legalize this? And with the dynamics that take place at the federal level for anyone to be competing against each other in, in trade organizations are always just blatant ignorance, in my opinion. And a lack of full respect for the industry as a whole, and they probably shouldn't be in the industry. Mm. So, you know, the, the first cannabis industry related conference I went to was six or seven years ago now. And I remember it was in LA and I remember being so impressed with how many women were at this conference. I mean, it was like 50% or more women. And, and you don't go to in any industry conference where there's that many women, unless it's like a women focused conference. And the speakers were women. 
the organizers, you know, at some level were women, the moderators of panels were women. And, you know, they were talking so, you know, everything from construction to the medicine. And I remember at that conference, you know, this sort of undertone of women need to stay in control. <laughs> I don't know if control is the right word, but need to, to stay involved. And, and this real sort of concern that they were going to get pushed out when they are really in a lot of the ways because of the healers, the medicine, right? And, and because they're women. So it's a softer message in general about healing and the powers of the plant and, 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 and cannabis and the medicine that there are a lot of the reason why the industry gained legitimacy and, and this concern that once it gained legitimacy and the money flooded in, they were going to get pushed out. And, and I'm just sort of curious, you know, that was six or seven years ago in my short span being in this industry. And I feel like I've, I've maybe seen that evolution happen, but I'm kind of curious, you know, being in this industry for 20 years, if you've seen sort of that same trend, or if maybe I'm just seeing it from a different perspective, because I'm going to different sort of, you know, industry conferences and talking to different people. I don't know. What are your thoughts I- on that? What are my, we could do a whole podcast on this? I, as somebody who has spent the last five years with Coldwater, doing a lot of work on business plans, business modeling, the overall quality of a company, teams taking them to raise capital, and then ultimately, if we're lucky, I get to build out operations with them and set it up, and here we go. I can say ultimately that hands down and statistically, it is proven that women-founded companies will outlive men-founded companies based off the quality of product and the connection to the consumer. This is known, statistically known. This is not just something I made up and not just something in the cannabis world. This statistic fascinated me. Why is it then that if women hold a percentage of higher success rate for a startup, which is very volatile for investors to get involved in, why is it that they can't get to the place where they can get them to be successful? The number one thing that I came back to was the inability to raise capital the way men could, the access to the capital. And what I saw very early on was a lot of us being given the opportunity to emerge in states where there was no competition and that there was us all racing to get to doors open, right, so to speak. Some of us had existing operations under medical, right, and that we were able to get those up and running. I found it very difficult for women to start in new states, very new states, without existing revenue or proof of concept. I found it very difficult for women to move forward in this industry and raise capital to get to a place where they can even get their doors open. So in the very early stages, we had almost 55%, more than 50%, or it was a little under 50% were women executives in the cannabis industry. We're now back to the standard ratio of any other corporate industry where it's less than 5%. And we can name those women together right now, right? Yeah. I mean, and the one thing that I always go back to is I have these amazing women companies. I looking at the business plans index and we try so hard to get that. It's the access to the capital and the willingness of the investor to invest in an all women company is really what I find to be the one difficult, though very hard fact to mention out loud. It is something that does need to be addressed. Why is that? right? Why is that the one piece? But in my opinion, it is the one thing that keeps coming back is the access to the capital, being able to take it and get it to the raise. 
I mean, are we not going after the capital or are we just having the door slammed in our face when we ask for the capital? It's been men to men raising money, right? Men feel comfortable supporting men. I, I literally can only bring it up to the fact that women have never been pushing forward to raise capital in a way like they do for cannabis. It is the amount of capital that women are asking for. These companies are not cheap. Some are 30 million, some are 20 million. And that's a fair ask for a company that would generate $300 million. It's literally looking at it too, in the sense that I think a lot of it has to be involved with your network. And if there are women on the call or on the podcast that are listening, I've seen the most success come from women raising just a few peers or like-minded people that know them based off of other industries they've worked in. And then through that, you just need one or two key investors and the rest will follow. Mm. It's very hard for women to get that first initial push of investment. Confidence a lot of times too, I can say some women don't sell as hard as the men do in all honesty. Right. Should we have to? I think that I have gotten really good at accepting that though I don't like the game, I can certainly play the game to get well. And I think as women, we can appreciate the value in that. And that's not doing anything degrading or unethical or anything along those lines, but using your brains to ultimately get what you want. I think women's psychology is more powerful than we actually allow ourselves to Mm. play in the sense that it is no different than the investment world is a very cutthroat world. And cannabis as a whole to get one of these licenses and to get it established and to set up operation is a beast in its own. So it's very hard to find an owner operator that has the skill set of understanding to raise capital, put a deck together and a model for the investment world, as well as having an owner operator understands what it means to set up a team and operations and build out. So, and I was forced to get good at both because in order to have one, you need the other. I mean, I was just going to say like, why, why not have more men and women partnerships even where maybe, you know, if you had a, a, just a a two owner, right? Two people going after the investment. And so you have a man who knows how to speak that language or who's comfortable and confident doing that to raise the money. But then the woman is like the COO, right? Like the person who is then, who's going to manage the team, who's going to design and operate, develop that facility or that, that operation um, to make it successful. Like, I, I feel like it doesn't even have to be either or that they could be working together to achieve a common goal. I would, that that's, is, <laughs> no, is that I, too optimistic? I don't know. No, well, I would rather say that we need more women companies two to one, let's beat them by the odds, right? Okay. More women companies out there building decks, models, pushing for investment, getting creative about where we pull our money from. I think that, you know, we had such an amazing thing early on than what you're referring to was, you know, seven years ago when we had a huge network of women, right? And resources that I think some of that is missing now. So maybe right here, right now, that's what we're starting is some sort of women's organization Mm. network. But I think we need to collaborate amongst each other. So I hate to say it, I want to bring another man into this. We don't need that. Okay, okay, fair. More women to circulate the information freely, right? And a lot of what I do with my women friends that are in the industry is have those conversations in a free form, right? Knowing that that information is only going to be useful to us women who need it, right? But 
it is talking to women openly and networking about, you know, what are you asking for? What is your ROI to the investors? What sort of networks are you tapping into? Um, I always find it very helpful to collaborate with women and enjoy doing it in every opportunity. And I can say hands down, working with women in any project management role all the way up to CEO, we have a higher success rate and we're faster to get it done. Yeah. And probably better quality too, right? Well, we just are <laughs> in our process. Um, I mean, just while we're on this, before we switch topics, um, tell me about your involvement with Women Grow. Is Women Grow still around? I, I hate asking that question. That's a great question. I do believe they are still around. I was one of the founding members of Urban of um, Women Grow, believe it or not. I was one of the board members of the not-for-profit that first started. And there was the intent of a beautiful organization that was going to be women-focused. And it had seven, gosh, ladies, don't kill me. Was it seven or 11 of us to start? Oh my gosh, that <laughs> does affect the memory. But there were some amazing women, owner-operators, from Colorado, California, and a few other emerging states that all came together to support the idea of creating an organization that would mentor down mm. by education, by investment, by circling, by sharing information and teaching down. And ultimately what I always said was I'm going to eventually get old such as now, and that I'm going to need really smart people to run my companies or be direct competitors with me to keep me moving. So yeah, I wanted women to do that. So through the organization, it was an amazing opportunity. We did conferences. A few of us got to do some amazing TED-like speeches. I gave one on red lipstick and another that were just like inspirational speeches about how hard it is to be an executive woman and, and the sacrifices you make. But that collaboration and group really provided me a lot of support to get to some really hard times in the cannabis industry because we were building the cannabis industry at the same time. So yeah, yeah, that was an amazing organization. And I stepped away from it when they transitioned from a not-for-profit to a for-profit. And a lot of us as board members stepped away from the organization. I can say that they are still around as an organization, but I'm not directly involved in terms okay. of where they are now. Okay. There are a lot of amazing women's organizations out there. I love the concept of just oftentimes too talking to women in the cannabis industry to find out where else they go. What other conferences are they attending? Because a lot of my inspiration lately has come from other women executive conferences as well. And as women, we should own the fact that we're executives and pay close attention to the information and the networks and where we are and all of that, especially if you're seeking investment. Mm -hmm. Outside conferences are a great place to seek investment for women. Yeah. And meet other women and <laughs> like-minded people. Yeah. So uh, switching gears a little bit, I, I, you've, you've touched a little bit about, you know, working in, in the health and safety side of the cannabis industry. What is healthy and safe cannabis? What a great question. Oh, that's great. <laughs> What is healthy and safe cannabis? Okay, so honest cannabis, can we say that? I refer to it as honest cannabis. Is there dishonest cannabis? <laughs> no, let's just say. So what is good, what is, it is ultimately grown, processed, 
and tested through some sort of, and I never, like 20 years ago, if I would, you would have told me I would have said this, that you've been out of your mind, but in some <laughs> sort of regulated and controlled environment. So it is being, I can say that most states that have medical and recreational cannabis now are producing healthy and safe cannabis. That's like actually something we should be really proud of right now. Like we can just yeah. to that, that ultimately if you were purchasing cannabis, and I can say that I have probably touched a percentage of owner operators through my cold water consulting work. There are some good, safe operators out there that are doing some really good stuff. And I can say that healthy and safe cannabis is cannabis that's purchased through a regulated, a regulated state off the cuff. That's a great question though. Yeah. I mean, what, what are the metrics? Are there specific metrics that, that we're yeah, tracking or measuring? I would call it a, a process of to which it's, tested controlled dosage so the consumer knows what they're getting that the labeling is authentic and honest so the consumer can make the decision you know not even diving into what's right or wrong but do they want to know if it's made out of bho or if it was grown mm -hmm. uh, with nutrients or organics or what what pesticides were put on that product so yeah i think that that is provided by any one of the states that is currently regulating that in my mind is honesty to the consumer, meaning that the consumer knows what it is they're getting before they consume it. And they make the choice accordingly. I mean, it's interesting because if I thought of any other, and I'm just going to call it an agricultural product, right? Yeah. If, if you're buying flour in a jar or in some sort of package, that is sort of a raw material. Um, right. It hasn't been processed really in any way, except dried and cured. If I went to the grocery store, Right. I would just see a sea of apples and oranges and without any packaging, except that it says that you're a gala and you're a red delicious. And that's it. Like. You, there's I, so, I, I know there's so much to unpack in there. The packaging. OK, let's leave <laughs> the packaging alone because I've never been supportive of the packaging. Never been supportive. Yeah, because I, I mean, I been ask, fights yeah. with some colleagues on some mm. legislative steps over packaging. I dragged bags of packaging once to the assembly in Colorado to show the point that just within a week, this was the amount of packaging I was producing in landfills. But let's keep that for a separate panel. That's a whole nother. Okay. One. Okay. I think ultimately, what was the topic? What was the question again? It was, <laughs> it was about labeling. Like you just mentioned all these things that are going to be on the cannabis package. Yeah. And I go to the grocery store to buy a different, agri any agricultural product. And you're lucky if it says, you know, tomato on the vine. And that's like what you, you know are, about that plant or about that fruit. Smoking some of the cleanest cannabis. <laughs> and that cannabis is cleaner than any produce in the market to date, like, and especially if it's organic, like, yeah, so tell me about it because we are so layered with regulatory testing requirements that at times are not the best for us and not capturing the right thing. I can say that there's a lot of data collected that is given to the consumer. So because of that, we are the heavily, we are the heavily tested consumable product on the market right now even more so than alcohol, I would say, because alcohol does not have to test as readily their batches as we do in our industry. Really? Yeah, no, they're not, they're not required to test every batch of Jack Daniels for the Shut proof. up. 
I swear, look it up, sister. I looked at the ABC laws, fascinating stuff. Because early on, we were regulating like alcohol. We were advocating that it was like hops. Very good, dear friend of mine, you know, Mason Tavert and Stephen Fox, absolutely advocating for the regulate like, like alcohol so we can my investigation and how is alcohol regulated? That's where I found out about alcohol regulations. Yeah, strict regulations they are, but they're not required to test per batch. Pharmaceuticals are. Okay. So we fell in line with pharmaceuticals. A much more I mean, stricter I, I, process. I mean, I was going to say, if we're going to be selling cannabis as a medicinal product, should we be following those pharmaceutical guidelines? We are dealing with an agricultural crop. So it's a bit of a it's, nuance in the it sense is. with pharmaceuticals, those are compounds. There's weights and measures. And from a recipe standpoint, you can control that like a cookie recipe. But when you're dealing with a living, breathing plant, I don't think that requires the same testing regimen that um, the end product does, so to speak, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Massachusetts has some of the toughest testing requirements that does make it a little difficult for some very clean product to get onto the market just for popping hot with certain things that I would find not to be at a percentage that they're calling it. And then you have other states like California and Colorado, which follow a much more agricultural line of processing for testing on the flower side. But this is distinctly different in the sense that, you know, we are taking it from an agricultural crop form into a compound, so to speak. So there are different, and I know this through my years of legislative work, there are different processes that we should be tracking for, and they're therefore setting up different testing requirements per I mean, I just, I, I just have a stupid question. There are no stupid questions. I know, I know. There's questions not. Are the of ones course not. You're scared to ask. You're scared <laughs> to ask. Those are the stupid questions. What is it? <laughs> okay, so your cannabis, you just finished drying and curing, and you take it, send it to a lab, and it tests positive for, I don't know, some percentage of powdery mildew. I'm just going to use powdery mildew. Eh, wrong. It is destroyed and rejected, right? Do we know that consuming, smoking, whatevering powdery mildew is actually unsafe for us? Yes. We do. We do. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, it's really bad for you. It can put holes in your brain. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Powdery mildew? Don't smoke it in large, yeah, large forms of smoking. Yeah, inhaling or breathing in any form of mold. Powdery mildew, powdery mildew. And then there are pests that I don't think are anything to worry about. But powdery mildew is definitely something that you should be cautious of. Okay. Sorry, that was the Debbie Downer. No, no, I'm so glad you could actually answer that question. That's why it's important to purchase product in the regulated market. If you have any sort of compromised immune system or anything along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, one of my early podcast interviews um, was a local grower here, Steve Squalia. And he was saying how, um, you know, he'd prefer to purchase off of the regulated, even though, you know, California has a huge black market. Of course we do. Right. I mean, we've been growing it forever. And a lot of people who grew up here still know people who grow at home or, you know, who sell on the side who aren't necessarily going through the legal channels. And, you know, he made a similar comment to you, you know, like buy it through the regulated market because you know what you're getting. 
You know, you, you have no idea what your friend or your friend's cousin's aunt <laughs> grew, how they grew it, what they grew, right? And, and what pesticides or pests could be on it. So it's, it's a great argument. It's, oh, there's just, with anything, there's the good and the bad. And it was never in my mind that we would prohibit anybody from growing cannabis and mm-hmm. producing anything with it. In my mind, it was to legalize it for home grows and not a limit. And my daddy's not limited on the amount of tomatoes he puts in his yard, but he is limited on it becoming a commercial industry in his backyard, right? So that was the difference was you get to a certain point where you become a farmer's market or a style like that. But ultimately, all of those products are controlled through the Department of Ag, through everything that we consume in the United States. There's some sort of regulatory oversight that makes it very easy for us not to get sick for the masses of people that consume food every day. It always surprises True. me who's worked in restaurants because if people knew how dirty restaurants were, they probably wouldn't eat in them a whole lot. But it's like, you just look at all the layers of things that could potentially go happen, that could happen. I think that cannabis overall for all that has been consumed, unregulated and now regulated, there there's very little to be concerned with, but powdery mildew is something to be concerned about. And I'm assuming botrytis then as well. Yeah. It is a mold. There's a few others, you know. Yeah, know. of course. Of course. You know, it's interesting you brought up how dirty restaurants are. I mean, I think a lot of people would think that their bathroom is the dirtiest place in their home, but it's actually the kitchen. Kitchen. Your kitchen, kids. I know. It's gross. So sponges, I don't know. Yeah. No, yeah. it's the worst. It's the worst. <laughs> and you're, you also someone who's like taught serve safe classes and like, so it's, there's a lot, I enjoy eating out all the time. I think it's better for your immune system, makes you stronger, tough and There you go. I agree. I like that. Yeah. Association is going to call me now. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. If you don't use a sponge, what do you use? I know it's weird, but I use, I have these uh, downy towels that I use and I use those to wipe. And then I have a, um, like a scrubber that that the top comes off of it. And I'm a little bit obsessive and I change it like every couple of days in the dishwasher and then replace it. It's one of those, I'm also really big on sustainability so I can use it over and over again, but I wash in the dishwasher. Yeah. I let go of sponges a while ago. I like things I can wash too. So I'll use, that's true. I'll use a cloth or something I can wash or sterilize right in the dishwasher, for example. Yeah. (laughs) Everything else is filthy kids. Don't worry. (laughs) Everything. Stay tuned this week to hear the second half of our conversation with Jamie Lewis. Thank you for growing with us.